Hi, my name is Becky Smith. I'm an occupational therapy student at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Deanna Longo. I'm an occupational therapy student at Stony Brook University, Southampton on Long Island. This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Hello and welcome to My OT Journey podcast. Uh, my name is Becky Smith. I'm a first-year occupational therapy student at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my name is Deanna Longo, and I'm also a first-year occupational therapy student at Stony Brook University, Southampton, on Long Island, New York. And we are so excited to be a part of the first OT student influencer cohort for the My OT Journey podcast. Yeah, we're very excited. Today we're speaking with two therapists who practice community-based occupational therapy, specializing in universal design and sensory-friendly programming. These two have partnered together to create inclusive programming in museums and cultural institutions across the Philadelphia area. Together they have gathered research relating to the impact of that inclusive programming has on families who members have disabilities, and their names are Dr. Fern Silverman and Dr. Andrea Tzika, of Salas University. So today we are going to talk about four areas and that includes general background questions, community-based OT questions, partnership questions, and then we're going to end with professor questions. So to start off this podcast, we want to ask what influenced each of you to enter the field of occupational therapy, which leads to our first question for both of you to answer, which is what made you want to become occupational therapist? So Fern or Andrea, you could whoever wants to take okay, it Okay, I will, I will start first. Well, first of all, I want to say hello to everybody, and I want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast. And my name is Dr. Fern Silverman, and I am an occupational therapist. I've worked mostly in pediatrics, and I've also been um, working in academia for quite a while now as well, teaching master's degree and post-professional doctoral students at Salus University. And um, when I um, started to look for a career, Quite a while ago, I was um, somebody who loved music. I played guitar. I played piano. Um, I also liked to help people. I volunteered in nursing homes and camps. And I wanted to try to find a way to put those two things together. So I, I, I ideally wanted to go into music, but I also wanted to include this helping element. And that is how I found my way to occupational therapy through a vocational counselor at the university I was attending. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I have so a little bit of a different journey. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. So, Fred, when you were little, did you want to be a musician when you grew up? I would still love to be a musician. I would love to conduct <laughs> a National Symphony Orchestra. That's my little alter ego. I would love to be talented enough to be a musician. And I, I thought about trying to do that, and I actually thought about, but then it sort of led me towards music therapy for a while. And when I, I realized along that journey in, in speaking to this vocational counselor that as much as I love music, I was interested in every type of occupation that helped give meaning to people's wow. lives. And he kind of explained to me that I could broaden my perspective from music to all occupations and think about, I did love this helping element of how to incorporate those and unite those two 
parts of myself. And wow. that was really how I ended up moving into occupational therapy. I actually started at the University of Pennsylvania. They used to have occupational therapy as a business student in Wharton. So I made a <laughs> part of the Oh, that's impressive. That's so cool. Oh, my God. Well, that's a great college. What I, what I ended up doing, they don't have OT there anymore, but they used to. So, um, so that is wow. uh, quite a big split. <laughs> yeah, that's very that unique. Yeah, but we have that vocational counselor to, to thank for introducing you to occupational therapy, which is amazing. Yes, and and I, I did I did stay as a music minor in college, so I did still <laughs> incorporate my music. That's that's so great. <laughs> and now, Andrea, do you want to introduce yourself and maybe say what made you want to become OT, an occupational therapist? Absolutely. I want to first, I want to thank Becky and Deanna for inviting me onto the podcast. This is so exciting for me. It's my first podcast ever, so I'm really excited about that. I am Dr. Andrea Tiska from South University. Uh, like Fern, I share both a peds brain and an academic brain. I've, that's primarily been my, my focus throughout my career is pediatrics and, and now academia. Um, I, I had a little bit of a different journey. I know I've been a STEM girl my whole life since I was in middle school. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I wanted to be a marine biologist. So my seventh grade science teacher, a little shout out to Mr. Wayne Van Camp. He was an awesome teacher, and he got me really excited about STEM. Um, and he said, oh, you want to be a marine biologist? You must love to use the microscope. And I said, no, I hate it. And he said, well, you might want to pick a new career then, <laughs> because a marine biologist spends most of their time in the lab. They're not out on the boat you know, playing with dolphins. That's just on television. So um, I started to really think about you know, what could I do in in the science arena um, that would, would get me excited. And, and just around that same time, I, I happened to have an unfortunate event in my family. My older cousin, who I was really close to, um, had a, a minor car accident and sustained a minor brain injury. She's fine now, but at the moment, um, she was not. And we were, you know, in the hospital with her every day. And one day I was visiting, and she was giving her OT such a hard time. Um, and the therapist <laughs> turned to me and said, you know, she really likes you. Do you want to help out in the session? Um, and together the two of us taught her how to feed herself again. And from that oh, wow. moment on, I was hooked. Wow. I was 13, and I knew I wanted to be an OT. I remember my mom picked me up, and I said, Mom, this lady has the coolest <laughs> job ever. She teaches people how to eat again. So I didn't quite understand at that age how big the scope of OT was, but I definitely knew that this is what I wanted to be. So I've been in love since 13, and I'm still as in love with OT now as I was back then. So That's amazing that you got such exposure to it at such a young age, because I feel like most people, including myself, didn't even really know what OT was until college, probably. That's around when I started to learn about it. I, think, I agree. You know, you bring up a good point, and we need to get the word out there for to people younger so that they can get invested in STEM careers early on because it's very hard to play catch-up. If you haven't been mm-hmm. paying attention to science and then all of a sudden, you know, at the end of, you know, senior year in college, you decide you want to go to grad school for, you know, mm-hmm. something in health sciences, it's a challenge sometimes to make up for oh, yeah. time. So I agree. Yeah. I need to get the word out I would there. definitely agree. <laughs> definitely spread awareness is key. Yeah. Um, that is such a great answer. Those are both great answers. Um, mm-hmm. So what I want to ask you is that really dreaded question that we all hate getting asked. 
uh, which ties into you know spreading the knowledge about occupational therapy. And so when people ask you the dreaded question, what is OT and how do you respond? And Fern, do you want to go first on this? Sure. I've certainly been asked this question many, many times. And the way that makes the most sense to me is I asked the person that asked me the question, think of all the things you did today before you came to this moment. Did you get out of bed? Did you go to the bathroom? Did you eat breakfast? Did you get dressed? Did you feed your dog? Did you go to the money machine? Did you drive a car? Did you go on your cell phone? Those are all little daily occupations. Now picture doing each one of those little daily things, like getting dressed, feeding yourself, getting out of bed, if you had an amputation. Or picture doing each one of those things if you had had a stroke recently. Or picture doing each one of those things if you were really depressed and didn't even feel like getting out of bed. Or picture doing each one of those things if you had a communication and sensory difference and really were uncomfortable in your physical world and you had to touch your clothes and put food in your mouth and how uncomfortable all those things might be for you. So what an occupational therapist tries to do is close that space between the person, the uniqueness of the person, and the occupation and activities that they that they want to do and need to do. So that's worked for me. That makes sense to me. But there's a million ways to go about this. But thinking about that makes me think about all the things that we do every day. Some of them we have to do, and some of them we have to do so we can do things we need to do and want to do. Um, and and that and closing that space for the, of all these things you feel helpless and impotent that you can't do or you can't do the way you want to do them or you can't participate. So um, to me that makes sense understanding the idea of occupation and the challenges to everyday activity and occupation that many people face. In fact, I would say everybody faces it at some point in their life. And that's, that's what's interesting. I mean, that it really affects everybody. Wow. That, that's a really great answer. <laughs> I'm going to have to try and remember that next time I get asked. <laughs> well, there's a whole list of these that are out there that people use, but that's the one that I use. I'm sure Andrea has her own version. <laughs> Andrea, what is your I, version? I do. I usually start by telling them, well, we don't get people jobs, because that's everybody's <laughs> first misconception about OT is, oh, you help people find employment. I mean, we do in very, very small instances when we're working on the occupation of work with a client, but that's those those occurrences, I think, are few and far between. Um, so I usually ask them if they know anybody who's received OT. I try and figure out and contextualize where have you been exposed to the profession. So, you know, maybe they had a family member who received hand therapy for an injury. So, you know, I tell them, well, that's one type of, of occupational therapy or one setting that we would work in. Um, and I try and explain to them that, you know, we work with people from pediatrics to geriatrics. So I kind of wow. contextualize it across the lifespan first. And then... I I give examples of how we would help people in those different age ranges, you know, build the skills to do the things that they need to do and want to do every day in life. And so I give examples from early intervention and school-based and adult rehab. And then I talk about some of our more of our like out-of-the-box, less traditional um, settings that we might work in. You know, we're Maybe we're going to the Breastfeeding Resource Center or maybe we're, you know, working in community mental health to try and help people, you know, stay engaged in the community. And and I I sort of give them those less – 
less well-known examples so that they understand that we're not just rehabilitative, but we're habilitative. We're trying to help people not only recover their health, but stay healthy and prevent, you know, issues from occurring. So I talk a little bit about how we might work, you know, in a wellness program. So I try and bring that wellness focus, but that's a passion area of mine. So I always try and bring that into the explanation as well. Wow, I love that you also bring in those other like lesser known areas because they're so important too because, you know, community men- mental health especially, you know, a lot of people that, that go to that type of program can feel really isolated from the actual community that they're living in. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that, you know, you bring that to the people's attention too. So I think some people don't even know that those are programs. And I think they get blown away. They're like, what would an OT do in a museum? And then I start to talk about our community programming, and they're like, oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. I think that leads into our next question, which is for Fern. And I think a lot of people, including myself, don't fully even understand what universal design is. So if you could define it, because I know both of you work in that area, and then also why does it matter and the importance of it? Sure. Universal design um, has to do with the properties of the physical world, things you can touch and see that are, have shape and fill space, um, and it has to do with the design of buildings, products, or environments, physical things, to make them more accessible for all people, no matter who they are. And it, it was started by Ron Mace, who was an architect who uh, used a wheelchair, and he realized how many barriers there were for him getting out there and participating in the world. But what to me is so interesting about universal design is it's not for people with disabilities. It's not specifically. It's, it's for all people, people who are pregnant, people who are either sunny six five, people who are very short in stature, people who are large in stature, people who are um, using a, a walker, people who are pushing a stroller, anybody who... We all use things differently, interact with physical objects differently, people who are left-handed, people who are right-handed. And this big umbrella includes people who have disabilities, but it also includes people who would not identify as having a disability, but we are all different. If my 80-year-old grandmother goes to the museum, she's going to have a different physical experience than a 20-year-old college student who has no health problems. So... And, and neither of them may actually be ill or disabled at that moment. Just the speed at which they move, you know, the, the way that they walk, their hearing and vision, everything is going to be different. That is normal for their age group. Um, so uh, it's the idea of universal design is to allow to consider those properties in the physical world and think about how to make it even the playing field to the greatest degree possible to include more fully everybody and allow people to participate more fully in whatever the setting is. And there are a certain number of um, principles that are generally considered the core principles for universal design, and that includes equitable use, flexibility in use, simple and intuitive use, perceptible information, tolerance for error, low physical effort, and size and space for, appropriate, for approach and use. And each one of these, uh, we could talk quite a bit about each one of them, which I, I don't think we have time to do that now, but I think it's, it's, it's a, a really important piece of um, places that we go and items that we hold and manipulate. And there are so many, whether it's opening a potato chip bag or a pill bottle to going up a ramp at a building, all of those can have universal design um, 
thinking embedded in, in how, you, how you make them and, and provide them for people. Universal design, just for those of you who don't know, can be contrasted to universal design for learning, which is not a model that has to do with the physical properties of things. It is an educational model. It is the way that people interact with things. It's the learning educational piece of doing something. So that is a contrast. But we, your question was about universal design itself, started by Ron May, which are really basically the principles I listed and about the physical properties, the properties of things in the physical world and how we can think about creating, making those properties in a way, adjusting those properties in a way that include the widest range of people. Now, there's no ultimatum where you actually can include everybody to do everything. For example, my 90-year-old mother could not maybe ride the bicycle at a museum. That's just not appropriate for that age group. You wouldn't maybe be able to make that safe for her. Or a four-year-old might not be able to do certain things, read something really complex on read at all. So you can't make everything always accessible for everybody. Um, but you do want to think about how you can include the most people in the most things. That's, that's that so helps? important. Yeah. Oh, that helps immensely. And I think you're so right. We could talk about this for probably hours about how, you know, this, this really is designed for all and it, it's really beneficial for all people when, it, when it's done properly. Yeah, and I think a lot of people participate in universal design or want to and don't even know that's what it is because everyone wants to have accessibility to local stores and activities to get outside. Definitely. And then and a lot of people don't actually have that. So it's, I, I see it as an ongoing process in each individual setting of trying to move the continuum forward where more people can do more things, realizing that there's sort of this never-ending process. First of all, environments change. So even if you would set it up perfectly, then you might get a new exhibit in a museum or a store may move, have a, a new rack of displays that are harder to reach or whatever. So, so that's one thing that changes. But also just that um, you're going to have to keep trying to push the buttons further but you will always have some people that need individualized programming or um, accommodations. You'll never be able to design something that every single person, no matter what their disability, can fully participate without ex extraordinary help. But universal design is, the design is built into the setting or the object, and it's supposed to not look like something for people with disabilities because it isn't. It's supposed to just be blended seamlessly into the environment or into that series of objects and look like it's just better designed for everybody. Like something like those OSO grips that people right. use or yes. their potato peelers. So everybody likes those. You don't have to have arthritis to use it <laughs> or hand grip problems. I mean, people, it's just a good design. It's better for everybody. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like a pro product for people exactly. with disability. It's just a well-designed product. Or doors that open inside of the supermarket, I mean, that's great if you're carrying two packages. You don't have to be someone using a walker, but it's great for someone using a walker as well. It's just good yeah. design for everybody. Yeah. I, agree. I mean, those are all great points. And then that, that brings me to a question for Andrea. Uh, so, Andrea, what is community-based occupational therapy? Well, like, you know, Fern said, the more things are designed well for everyone, the more accessible they are. But, you know, she brought up a, a, 
a really good point that you can't always design for everybody. And I think that's where community-based OT interventions come in, when you, when you hit that population that you haven't quite designed well enough for. And they have an issue with accessibility in the community, that's where we can come in. Um, you know, some people define community-based OT as simply providing services where people live, work, and play. Um, I consider that more community-based intervention. Um, I did that a lot when I was in um, the school setting. I would take kids out into the community. We'd go to the supermarket and, you know, teach them how to shop and do things like that. Um, in my opinion, the difference between that and community-based OT is that the heart of community-based OT lies in developing community partnerships and really capacity building at the community partner level so that you can enable groups and populations of people that aren't necessarily, you know, you know, universally designed for it, that you can help those populations thrive. So that's where you get into some of that special programming like Sensory Friendly Sunday. So now for both of you, Fern and Andrea, we want to ask you what made Well, I can start by saying that the way I found OT as a field was a bit roundabout. It's not always a circuitous, uh, it's not always a straight line. It can be circuitous and finding your way to something. And I, it was similar to the way I got interested in community-based practice. I was teaching at another university. I teach at Salus University in Elkins Park now. And I was teaching somewhere else. And in the context of my course, I needed to find an area for students to observe people doing daily occupations, um, particularly children, in a, um, in, a, in a setting, and I didn't want to deal with playgrounds because it was the winter, a winter course. And so I thought of museums, and I, I had a contact there. So it was just a roundabout way that I found wow. it and got permission to bring students in there. And then once I got there, I thought, gee, there's a lot I could do with this. This is kind of interesting. So it just kind of grew as an opportunity that presented itself. Well, I identified the opportunity, but then once I got into it, I got very excited about it and thought, I thought to myself something I'd heard many times as a practitioner and, and in different conferences, the idea that therapy happens in a therapy setting, but life happens outside of the therapy setting. And life right. is where you want people to mm -hmm. feel more successful and be able to participate. It's not about how many steps they can take or how many tiles they could put in a trivet in a therapy room. It's about can they pick up their pills at home on their kitchen table or can they walk to the bathroom across the room. It's a very different, that's where life happens. And so, so I thought this is a great setting because people have to do so many things in a community setting. They have to get there. They have to have social interactions. They have to navigate through the building. They have to process information. It encompasses so many um, areas of uh, functioning. And so I kind of got really excited about that and the idea of forming these partnerships. So again, it was a little bit roundabout, but once I found my way there, I, I really loved it. That's amazing. I, I actually yeah, I never that. knew that. Um, <laughs> You know, of course, I've worked with you at one of the museums that you partner with, and um, it's just so funny that I never knew that, that it was because the playgrounds were closed that we kind of found you. That's kind of like a beautiful happenstance. Yeah. <laughs> I just, just thought it might be really cold. It was a cold, snowy winter, and I thought, <laughs> I don't picture taking the OT students to these playgrounds in the winter. Let's find an indoor place to see kids play. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so great. Yep. And then all those and happy then accidents it. work out. <laughs> they really are happy accidents. 
And then, Andrea, what, what made you want to work in the, the community-based setting? Uh, Fern did, really. I mean, I'm going to blame it all on her. Um, you know, Fern has an incredible energy about her. And when I first came on board um, under her leadership at Salas, she's like, hey, I have this great project that's coming up that I could use help with, and do you want to do it? I'm like, sounds fun. I love science. I love the Science Museum. I'm in. Um, and it, it was just such an incredible dynamic team um, at that community-based setting that I was just, I was hooked. It was so much fun to work on, on developing Sensory Friendly Sunday. And then, you know, when we, we first got into the research project, it was just an incredible right. partnership. Yeah. It really was. As, as uh, somebody that was on the other end of it, you guys were great partners as well. Uh, you know, and then, you know, kind of going off of that, so I know that, you know, at, at the Franklin Institute we had Sensory Friendly Sunday, but how do you feel that, you know, sensory friendly programs in general have, like, changed the lives of families of people who have disabilities and kind of the community itself in the Philadelphia area? Have you seen, like, a big change in a child's confidence or, like, adaptability to external settings, like ability to tolerate noise or the lighting in those exhibits or just enjoy themselves a little more? Uh, you know, well, we, we did do a research project, and I think we were kind of shocked by what we found out. Um, it, it actually, can, one of our themes was it contributed to a family's, you know, mental well-being, that they were able to come out and enjoy the museum and feel less stressed and less anxious and, you know, really just feel accepted and feel that, you know, there was something special for them where there would be people available to help out if need be. So, you know, if you really want to read the article, it's in AJOT. You can certainly find out what all the themes and sub-themes are. Um, but for me, I think some of the stories that families told were the most powerful. Um, Fern, do you want to tell our dad's story or do you want me to tell it? You can tell that one. I'll tell about the other little boy. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, we, you know, one of the people that we had interviewed, our research project was to, to find families that were coming into the museum and to, to do short, structured interviews with them um, over the phone following up. And we had talked to, to one dad who brought out his adult daughter. She was, I guess, about in her young 20s. Um, and she had a lot of significant needs. And we found out when we talked to him that that was the first time he had ever brought her out to a museum ever because wow. he was a single dad, and, and he said it's just so hard, and even just to manage going to the bathroom with your adult daughter when she has significant needs. And I remember him asking us, going, well, you work at a university. I assume you've had a background check. Can you help me in the bathroom with my daughter? I don't feel comfortable taking her into the ladies' room. I mean, I feel it just tugged at my heartstrings. I'm like, I can't imagine what families go through when they don't have a partner, when it's just, you know, a mom or just a dad or, or not having that extra support available. So the fact that he felt confident enough to bring her out, knowing that he would have support personnel in place at the museum to help with the visit, I, I, to me that just, it just, I don't know, it made it all click for me. Yeah, that's beautiful. I agree. And he actually brought her more than once, several times he brought her. And one of the things he said when we did these qualitative um, research interviews to gather these rich narratives from the families was that for her it, and, for, and for him, it was the social environment of being in an accepting, accepting community center that would, al would allow her to be louder or have some behaviors that weren't typical and still be welcome and not be ostracized or made feel bad, that that's what was most important, that social environment with other people and be accepted out in the community. 
Um, yeah. Even more so than a specific um, exhibit adaptation we made, that wasn't as important to this particular family as the attitudinal change in the museum and the, welcome, and the welcoming um, attitude. Um, and so that was an interesting piece of that. Um, I feel the same as Andrea, that the faces of these children and their parents um, were the, was so, so gratifying, and that's where you really see the change, but not just um, the benefit of these types of programs, not just their faces, but also their words gathered through um, research. Um, but one of the story, other stories that stands in my mind was a little boy who really wanted to um, engage in the, there was a brain exhibit, which was a climbing labyrinth. Um, that had flashing lights, and the, this is something that this boy, who must have been about eight or ten, wanted to do, and the parents had approached it multiple times, and he was uncomfortable participating because not only did the flashing lights disturb him, but the crowds were a big problem for him. So right. going on a sensory friendly day where there were way less crowds and a lot of the extra stimulation was turned off, allowed him to participate in something that he'd been wanting to do for a long time. Um, but every time he tried, he would retreat. Um, and, but he was successful and did it multiple times. And that's just their story about that. With their whole family, he could play with his brothers and sisters in that setting and be, be there as a family, having a normalized moment. Um, and and there, was, there was no barrier present for him, them all having a good time together. That, I thought that made me feel really good about um, the benefit of programs such as Sensory Friendly Sundays. And that was so important because I actually remember that. And I remember that the brain exhibit, for those of you who have never been there at the Franklin Institute, it's really an awesome exhibit. However, that particular room you're talking about, you go in and it's dark and you'll hear this like kind of like abrupt noise. And it's supposed to um, mimic what a synapse would sound like as it fires. And then you hear like drums going and like laughter and like a horn. And that's supposed to be like the sensory input that you're taking and that it's sending out to other areas of the brain. And so that's what the whole idea was around that room, which is like what a great idea to like, you know, show how a synapse is firing. However, you know, the sensory part of that is, okay, now it all of a sudden is dark and there's a light flashing and all these sounds are going off, you know. So if you don't have that context, it, it can be really scary. Right, exactly. Yeah, I just wanted to give that little context of how that exhibit looks, you know. Yeah, that's definitely good for me because I wasn't there. So to get like a visual of it um, is definitely really neat. And I think, and I love both of those stories because I think it just shows like how much like both of you impacted their families and how like it would, they were able to go out into the community and feel safe, which I think is really important. Um, so then to bring it back to the beginning of the Century Friendly Maps, where did the idea come about to create them? And how did you go about doing that? Well, the idea for the Century Friendly Maps started with research. And you know, we all know as OTs that we have to do good research to understand what is out there and build on it whenever you're doing any kind of new initiative. So research into what other museums were doing, and then doing a comprehensive environmental scan to fully understand what from beginning to end, the experience of somebody who comes to the museum with different disabilities or different a range of needs would be like. And that speaks to almost a huge activity analysis in a way where you don't leave anything out from getting there in transportation, various types, getting out of a vehicle of some sort or walking, whatever, getting into the building, and then every single step that goes from then, for, then, then forward. 
um, from purchasing a ticket and engaging in exhibits. And one of the pieces of that is using the map. And um, the maps are one of the first things that visitors encounter. And then as I looked at the map, I thought, how, how is this, this going to work for our visitors? And what kind of information are they going to take out of this map that's going to be useful in them planning their visits? And one thing that kept in my mind was um, that when you bring a child with uh, a special needs to a, a community setting, or any child actually, you only have a very short, finite amount of time to be able to stay sometimes. And so you want to use your visit in the most targeted way possible so that you can have the, men, the most good moments you can and the fewest bad moments. So which, which places in the museum would you have the highest chance of having a successful interaction for your child? So the goal of the maps were to allow people to plan their visits in a way that would maximize their chance of having a successful visit. Um, and, and, and as far as the amount of time people spent at the museum, uh, in general, the sensory-friendly Sundays, and this was part of our research, allowed, uh, and the cool-down spaces allowed a reboot for parents as well. So sometimes they could extend the visit to be a little longer. But even so, you want to be able to choose in a thoughtful way which rooms and which interactives would be the most likely to be successful. So if you have a child that needs to move, which exhibits allow more movement? Or if you have a child that likes the dark and quiet, which spaces might be the most better match for your child to go in? So that's what we tried to do with the sensory map. Wow, that's very interesting because you're right. It shows that they chose like certain areas that it might have been better for that particular child to go to depending on the lighting or the type of exhibit that was being offered. So it's great that the sensory maps gave that kind of information before the child actually saw the exhibit so they knew what they were seeing before they actually got there, like the level of like the lighting exactly. and everything like that. And it's a big building, and it's not an easy building to find your way around either. So by the time you get your, your stroller and your other kid and your husband and everybody all the way to the <laughs> room, and then you find that that space is not going to be good, it can, you can kind of blow your time that you have available. You know, right. you don't want to – so I think that, that the planning piece and, and many parents with kids with special needs are used to planning in advance. So it was, right. it was a real help mm -hmm. them to have this up on the Internet um, and, and have them have a chance to plan before they got there, I think. Do you agree with that, Andrea? I really do. I think planning is key when you have a child with special needs and you need to know what to expect so that you can use your, the small amount of time that you do have out in the community, you can use that to, um, efficiently. Yeah, I actually looked up one of the sensory maps and I thought it was such a great idea and so unique and I wish that all the museums had it. Because even like for <laughs> me, like I was looking at it and I was like, this is so cool and it's so informative and also like child friendly, like a child could look at it too and like understand it and the family too. So I think it's very important. So leading yeah. back, um, so Fern, in your paper, kind of bringing it back to accessibility, so within your paper, Occupational Therapy Partnerships with Museums, you noted, um, we spoke about how important research is, but that research suggests that barriers to participation for those with disabilities continue to exist in museums and other community settings, excluding many visitors. So just some, um, what are some other community settings that you think pose significant barriers for those with disabilities, and then in what way? Wow, that's a big question. Well, I think pretty much 
any setting can present barriers for visitors with disabilities, and depending on which disability category you're thinking of, like seniors or you know, with mobility problems or children on the autism spectrum, it will vary as far as which will be the most challenging for them. But one group I think that often gets forgotten, um, and this isn't about this, which setting, but one group, is people with behavioral health problems and sensory problems. And the reason why is that those, vis those disabilities are invisible, and mm -hmm. so they tend to be um, marginalized by others and people really are uncomfortable interacting with people who fall in that category. I know, for example, that people with those types of disabilities have struggled in public transportation and other types of areas, and, um, and they tend to not be, maybe have the verbal skills to advocate for themselves. Um, and uh, so I think that that group, we need to be particularly um, tuned into their needs and, and not let them be forgotten in, ev in every setting, whether they're in a supermarket, a shopping mall, um, a museum, a movie theater, whatever. Think about how we can include those people more fully. I think that's like a great lead into our next question, Fern. You know, as you're saying, like expanding past this museum setting. So, where do you see the future of community-based occupational therapy going? Well, I, I mean, this is Andrea. I, I see, you know. I see this going in a lot of different directions. You know, as, as Fern and I expanded from the Science Museum to the Art Museum, we just found a whole new set of people who wanted to help out. And it's generally people right. who are passionate about something. So if you're passionate about art, you might help in an art museum. If you're passionate about theater, you might help make a theater program more accessible. So I think we're going to see people tying their passions into their practice. I had a, a student who, um, as an undergrad, she was a competitive gymnast. So for her capstone project, she wanted to make a gymnastics program more accessible. So I think we're going to see those type of partnerships happening. Um, I, I also think that you know, what we're experiencing right now in the country with, you know, being in the middle of a pandemic, for those of you who are listening at a later date, um, I think we're going to see more OTs dr being driven into public health and realizing that we yeah. have an mm -hmm. opportunity to use our skill set as people who can plan projects, who can break things down, who can do right. really good interviews, who can, who can think about all the contact tracing. Well, an OT would be perfect at doing that because we are great at analyzing occupations and where people have been and what people have done. Um, so I think being able to sell your skill set as an OT to someone who might not be advertising for an occupational therapist, but looking at a job and saying, oh my gosh, my OT background gives me that skill set. I'm going to convince this person why they need to hire an OT, even though they didn't necessarily advertise for one. So I think that's the, the future, in my opinion. It's really hard sometimes to make a, a huge difference as a consultant. So if we can get right. employed in settings full time, I think that's where we're going to see big impacts. I totally agree with you. I think that you know public health is definitely one arena that we should definitely be in. You know, because like you said, we you know everything we do is occupation, so like activities of daily living. We know how. You know, I think we look at, you know, people a little bit closer and are able to see, like, what actually did you all do today? You know, we might, you know, where you might easily forget, like, oh, I did stop at the grocery store or something like that if you're trying to trace where you've been, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then, so, Fern, what would you like to see happen with accessibility uh, in Philadelphia? So, like, as the, the city is still expanding and growing, and as it expands, what changes are you hoping to see? 
Well, I think that, you know, I do sort of, to a point, go believe in the adage, nothing about us without us, that the key is to get representation from different disability communities um, involved in um, places in the community so that they can tell us from the inside out really what makes things easier for them to participate. Um, however, I, I do think also, you know, you have to be careful um, because there are re real constraints in what's possible. And so I, I, I think that those kind of partnerships need to be fair-minded from both ends. So that, uh, because, you know, there, unfortunately, perfection, you never want to let the, uh, the goal of perfection impede progress. And you're never going to get perfection. You want to make progress um, without expecting perfection. Because we're all, it's a work in progress to include people more fully. And as I said, even people without disabilities can't necessarily do everything in every setting. That's just right. the way it is. Because we are all different bodies with different body functions, you know, and so um, and different language skills and different literacy skills and different cognitive abilities. So you can't necessarily do everything everywhere all the time, every day. It's life changes and it's a, a health is a, is a dynamic um, construct and, it, and um, participation is as well. So we have to be, I'm a realist, I'm a very pragmatic person. So I, I, don't, I think people have to come in with the right attitude who want to participate. But I do think including people um, with disabilities who, have a, a, who want to partner in a fair way are, is an important piece in, um, in reducing these types of, um, in, in enhancing accessibility in a city like Philadelphia. I know there was a Philadelphia Tourism Board, and I knew somebody who was in charge of that at one point, and she was looking for representation. I think doing research is important. Um, because then you get a, a bigger, a rep a bigger um, understanding, a better, more accurate understanding of what the needs really are. And, you know, right. not just maybe the most vocal, but the most fairly representative of what people really do need and what is possible. And you always want to push that what is possible forward. But unfortunately, right. there's no magic book, you know. So we want to be pragmatic, <laughs> but move things forward. That would be my sense. I would love to see that as well. I think that's, that would be great, just more partnership, especially with people who yeah. actually have disabilities. Yeah. yeah. No, I definitely agree. And then to end off our community-based OT questions, overall, how many events, programs, journals have both of you worked on together, and then what was your favorite and why? Um, I, you know, as academics, Fern and I collaborate constantly on papers and, and posters and presentations and those kind of things. And although they're, they're fun in their own right, um, I think we're both a little bit more passionate about the program development piece. Um, you know, we've done Sensory Friendly Sunday at the Science mm -hmm. Museum. We've done Sensory Friendly Saturday at the Art Museum. Um, we've taken the post-professional OTD students to the Museum of the American Revolution um, to work on oh, a project. Wow. Um, I think my very favorite project, though, was the Jurassic World exhibit. Um, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's, you know, from the movie Jurassic World, and there's all these animatronic dinosaurs. And <laughs> it's very sensory intense. So um, a few of our, our uh, actually it was our, our honor society, our Phi Theta Epsilon students that um, went out with us, and they helped us do a map specific to the Jurassic World exhibit. And then two of our capstone students did um, a, a 
a small study where they looked at was this effective not only for people who were there for Sensory Friendly Sunday, but for the general public. And they found that people in the general public felt that the map was helpful. And that mm-hmm. just sort of blew us away. We just didn't expect <laughs> that finding, that the general public would find this to be a helpful tool. So we, that was just really exciting for me. Just the exhibit itself was super cool. Um, and then that, that finding that the capstone students were able to discover, I think that was great for me. I don't know if Fern has a different answer, if she has a different favorite. <laughs> well, I, sometimes I think my favorite is whatever new project I'm working on. I'm always excited <laughs> about something new that comes my way. And I'm like, wow, that sounds cool. So I do think, you know, that I like the novelty of, of, of approaching somewhere new and, and meeting new people, exploring a new setting, and thinking about new possibilities. But that would be my answer. Whatever what I'm working on this new. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that way too. Like whenever I'm doing an assignment, I'm always like, this is my best one. And then I'll do another one and I'll be like, no, this is my best one. Like as I progress, like I just believe in my assignments even more. Um, but I think it's actually an interesting point, Andrea, you brought up about the capstone students and what they found. Because when I was looking up the sensory maps, just to get a general idea, because I know Becky explained to me what it was, I even found it helpful just to look at it online. So I think that that's really interesting, that it could go to everyone. It could be really helpful to a mass of people. Yeah, yeah. we actually contacted the company that owns the exhibit and said, you know, this was our finding if you're interested in, in having this available at, at other locations because it was a traveling exhibit. So it was leaving mm-hmm. um, the Science Museum and it was moving on to somewhere else. Um, so I just think that as those things become more mainstream, um, we'll, we'll continue to see their benefit. I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, those maps were not only, like, very useful, but they were so user-friendly, too, because they're color-coded, you know, by complexity, complexity of, you know, sense or what you might be using in that situation. But um, so for those of you that don't know, I've worked with Vern and Andrea for a really, really long time because I was one of the employees at the Science Museum of Dimension several times. And so you guys are actually the people who inspired me to become an occupational therapist, and you're also the people that first introduced me to what occupational therapy was, and I think I was like maybe 23 at the time, so <laughs> I was already a museum professional. Um, and then, you know, it occurred to me when we were writing these questions, because Deanna was so nice uh, to allow me to interview you guys. Uh, she agreed to be, you know, cute you guys, and that was great. But it occurred to me, I don't know how you guys met. Uh, well, we, well, I don't know, Fern, do you even remember that we first met at an advisory board meeting at a, at a former institution where Fern used to work? That was our very, very first introduction. We were um, introduced by a mutual friend, Dr. Ruth Barber, and she said, you have to meet my friend Fern. She's so great. She's a peds person. She wrote this book. You'll love it. Um, and, and I think, you know, we had that interaction, and then it, it kind of came and went. And then Ruth had reached out to me years later to say, you know, my friend Fern that you met at the advisory board meeting, she's now a program director at Salis University, and she, you know, is looking to hire faculty and, and would love to talk to you. And there was, I, it just in my mind, I was at that point 20 years in the clinic, and I loved being a clinician, and I never saw myself going into academia. Um, and it was really when I walked into Fern's office, and she just sort of laid out the curriculum and, and her vision for this new program and what she was going to do, 
Fern has wow. just such an incredible energy about her that she sucks you in, and you're like, yeah, I can see myself doing this. Um, so yeah, like our we we had a very brief interaction at that advisory board meeting, and then we met when Fern hired me as a, a new faculty member with relatively little teaching experience. I had taught as an adjunct before, um, I think, but. But, you know, Fern was great in that she wanted to balance her faculty out as experienced faculty and new faculty so that, that we, could, we could have mentorship and we could grow our department. Um, and I just thought that was incredible. That was incredibly visionary of her to be able to say, let me pair people who have experience with people who are young and we can turn key the, the knowledge and we can really, you know, partner with each other and grow the department. So forward thinking and, and so much energy that, you know, I was hooked after one meeting with her. Ah. <laughs> well, I can only say it was a lucky day for me when, and a lucky day for a lot of <laughs> OT students when Andrea agreed to come and join Salas' faculty. So she's been a fabulous partner, and we, you know, we have our, our we, we laugh a lot together. We w both are very hard workers. We both, you know, put the class, love the clients, and uh, I think we really um, have had a lot of fun together. We're both kind of can-do people, and uh, <laughs> I think we've, we've been able to, um, do a lot of things successfully, and when we don't, we fix it and move on. So it's 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 worked it's worked out great. Absolutely, I agree. That's just so awesome. I'm I'm so glad I finally got to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> I think we complement each other really well. I think you know where one of us is strong. Um, you know, another one might be a little weaker. You know, when we write together, it's great because, you know, Fern always corrects all my grammar mistakes and I always correct all her APA mistakes. And, <laughs> and I think it's so important when you, when you partner with someone, you don't pick someone who has the exact same strengths you do. I think you, you have to look for someone who is kind of like the yin to your yang and you can, and, and can complement each other. So I think when people are partnering, they have to find not just someone who's exactly like them, but find right. someone who's has something in common with them, um, but yet you have different strengths and weaknesses. We definitely That's awesome. do I have think those I, different strengths. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely that's think that's important. Yeah, yeah, they have like different strengths, so then you balance each other in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And I can and definitely then, use somebody for, you know, fixing my APA format. <laughs> I was I was fixing your grammar when so we were lucky. writing these questions and then we were like know, you were so each other well. <laughs> we did. We were really maybe we found each other. This is great. <laughs> so then to end off our um, partnership questions, our one of our last questions is for Fern and it, it could be and Andrea you can answer too. If you could change one thing about being an O T, what would it be? I mean I would probably change yeah the things that we all know, unfortunately, awareness of the profession, which is something mm -hmm. that we've had. That question about what is an occupational therapist is something I've been asked since I became an OT many years ago, and it, it hasn't gone away, mm -hmm. um, though I think it's improved, it's, and we've been written into a lot of legislation, which has helped. It's still, it's, still, and because it, it's still a question, and because it's such a holistic profession, and it can look so different in different settings, I think it's important for people to understand what unifies what we do, no matter where we work. And I, I don't think it's, it's, it's an easy concept for some people to understand. So that awareness of OT, and mm -hmm. then in these challenging times, I think reimbursement is the other thing that uh, yeah. I wish was um, more straightforward, I think, in general, 
um, with all healthcare professions. Uh, it's been a challenging uh, landscape, um, and let's hope that um, things improve for healthcare access for everybody. Yeah, I definitely and think I, those are I agree 100%. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think awareness and reimbursement are important. It's actually interesting because in one of my classes, we were paired with a physical therapist in Stony Brook program, and we had to explain what OT was, and I thought it was interesting in terms of awareness how they didn't even really know what OT was. Oh, so wow. I found, yeah, I found that interesting because I was like a another healthcare profession. So I think definitely spreading awareness is important to everyone and even people that you would collaborate with in a clinic too, just so they fully know even what it is that we do. That was so smart of your program. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I actually learned a lot about physical therapy I didn't even know. So even like I was getting more aware of what physical therapy was. So I thought that was important. Wow. I mean, speaking of curriculum, this brings us uh, to our professor question section, and it's actually our last section. Uh, so I just wanted to ask, you know, what is the most rewarding aspect of being an OT graduate school professor? And I don't know if, if Fern, if you want to take this first, and then maybe Andrea? Sounds good. Sure. Well, I, I, you know, of course it's helping the students succeed, and I, I enjoy the class time when I'm actually getting to interact with students. But I will say that one of my proudest moments was our very first cohort at Salas, not when they marched down in commencement, because that's just a ceremony, but afterwards <laughs> when, they all the, when they all passed the NBCOT exam, then I oh, really wow. felt like I did, I did my job. They learned what they needed to learn. We did a good job teaching them the core knowledge in our field. And so that learning process, being able to say we, success, we were successful at that, that makes me very proud of our students, and that's very rewarding to me. This, uh, particularly because I've been in the administration side quite a bit as an academic, and I'm just seeing that that actually, how that actually happens and to close the loop and see them all going out there and becoming our colleagues, not our students anymore. That's very exciting. That's amazing. I, that's I, amazing I, that you had that you know, whole cohort pass, 100% pass rate on your first shot. Yeah, that's incredible. We did. We did. Wow. So that was... Well, I, I agree with Fern. I think it's really super exciting when we get the news that everyone has passed, and it's sort of that tangible proof that, that people have learned what they were supposed to learn, and, and that's always great. Um, but for me, I think the most rewarding thing, I, I love being in front of the class, I love teaching, but even more than that, I love the relationship building and the mentorship that we get to do. You know, when people come into my office and they're like, I just need advice. You know, this is what I saw in, in you know, the clinic the other day when I was in field work. What do you think about that? Or this is where I think I want to work, but I'm not sure. Can you help me figure it out? Or even sometimes when they, they reach out and say, hey, I have this personal thing going on that's kind of getting in the way in the classroom. You know, where do you think I should wow. go from here? Mm -hmm. I, I think I think for me that is just that relationship building and that mentorship. Um, when I first got into teaching, someone told me, no one will learn anything from you if they don't know who you are. So I always wow. try in the very beginning of, of a cohort to kind of take some time for us to get to know each other as people. So I think that's really an important piece of teaching. You're really I think good it's actually something we, we do really well, I think, as a whole department at Salus. I think we all sort of are on board with how important those relationships are, and we take time out of our, our, you know, our curriculum in the very beginning to, to build those relationships. 
I mean, I think that's truly amazing because I think I know as a student, I feel way more comfortable with a professor when I know a little bit about them as a human. Yeah, me too. And when I don't, I feel very intimidated by them. You know, when I just know them because of, you know, research that they've done or accolades, it can be really intimidating as a student. Mm -hmm. You kind of lose that, that human aspect of it. Yeah, we, we try think, to demystify, yeah, who we are as people. I think that's helpful. I think you, you know, you're not alone in that viewpoint, that it can be very intimidating to, to meet somebody who you don't know as an individual, but you just know as a name that's been published or you've read in a magazine or something. Right. We're all right. people. We put on our, our socks <laughs> the same way everyone else does. <laughs> One at a time, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I want to make sure I'm doing it right. <laughs> and then speaking of the student-teacher relationship, what – what can an OT student do to stand out from the rest of the cohort in a good way? Um, you know, I think people that just want to go the extra mile, that ask questions, that raise their hand, that volunteer for projects outside of the classroom. Show, what you're, show us what you're passionate about. You know, everyone got into OT because they fell in love with some aspect of it. So show that side to us. And, and, you know, be willing to, to cultivate um, that passion as you continue in the program. Uh, so you really want us to tell our story, too? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Wow. I think that's really important because I think it's really, it can be really scary to tell your own story, you know? Yeah, I agree. But I also think the more you get, like, the more you learn about the professors and the more you learn about your cohort, you feel more safe around them. Like, I know, like, my cohort, we feel like a family. So I feel, like, I feel like I could share anything with them. Wow. I think it's important. And then for Fern, over your years of teaching, what do you feel is the most important lesson you have imparted on your students? Huh. Well, I guess I think <laughs> mainly you don't be so afraid of making mistakes because mistakes are how you learn. And when you make a mistake, you want to, first of all, try your best to fix the mistake. You don't just leave it. And then you learn from it. And I always tell students about mistakes I've made. And I'm happy to tell them about them so that hopefully they can avoid them. And with the master's degree students, they're concerned about clinical mistakes they make. For the doctoral students, we have a post-professional doctoral program, they're concerned about the research mistakes they make. But if you don't, Go through that process and you can't get to the other side where you make fewer mistakes. And you will always make some mistakes and you're always trying to correct them and learn from them and go forward. So that's, pro that's what the whole educational process is about. And that's true for um, master's degree students, doctoral students. And I, I try to share that with students and I share some of my own mistakes. So I think I hope they get that message from me. It's okay. Just fix it and move on. Learn yeah, from I it. That's definitely important because I feel a lot of times whenever I make a mistake, I panic or think it's a, on the road to failure, which it isn't because I can learn so much from it. So I think that's something that's very important. I agree. I usually end up feeling the same way that you just described. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a common feeling. <laughs> yeah. It's like one mistake's going to skyrocket into a million. Right. And then, so I know for me personally, I struggle with balancing school and my personal life, so that leads to our next question for Andrea. If you could tell all of your OT students, or tell all of the OT students in the country struggling with balancing five classes, homework, projects, family, friends, all of that good stuff, what is one thing you would say to them? 
Um, well, certainly that they're not alone in their struggle because I, I think this is a universal piece of being a graduate student, but it's also a universal piece of being a health professional. You know, it doesn't go away when you, you get your R. Um, you know, you're still stressed out about all those things. The difference is you're getting a paycheck, um, so it's a little <laughs> less financially stressful. Um, so learn early on to do something every day to enhance your well-being um, in any of the eight dimensions. Well-being is not just eating right and, and exercising, but there's you know, physical, emotional, financial, occupational, environmental, spiritual, social, intellectual. Those are all the different dimensions of well-being. And we teach about those in the post-professional OTD program for anyone who's really jazzed about health and wellness like I am. Um, and a lot of financial analysts will tell you when you're saving for retirement, pay yourself first before you pay everyone yeah. else. Well, it's the same thing with health and wellness. You have to put those health and wellness needs once a day on the front burner, not the back burner, or else you're going to burn yourself out. Um, there was a great article that when I was, I was a reviewer for AOTA for their conference proposals, and they had submitted a proposal and they referenced an article by doctors uh, Bodenheimer and Sinsky about the quadruple aim, not just the triple aim of healthcare, but the quadruple aim. Um, so the triple aim was really popular when the Affordable Care Act first came out, how we're going to increase patient, um, the patient experience and increase population health and decrease cost. But these two physicians said we have to add a fourth aim. We have to add increasing the work life of healthcare professionals to prevent wow. burnout. Um, and not only are OT students at risk for burnout, but so are, are treating clinicians. So, um, you know, be as compassionate with yourself as you are with your clients. You know, it's not about perfection. It's about progress. And like, you know, Fern had said, learn from your mistakes. Um, and, you know, if you make the most important thing the most important thing every day, and that's always going to be, you know, your own well-being and, and, you know, doing the right thing for your clients, then you're going to be okay. You know, that's my <laughs> advice at least. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah, that is. I definitely think that's very important to take care of yourself in addition to balancing everything. I so agree. And, and burnout is so um, evident in so many cohorts already. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important for, you know, everybody to kind of take a look at those eight dimensions of, 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 health, of health and well-being and kind of apply it to ourselves. I think sometimes we forget about ourselves in the midst of everything that has to get done. Yeah. Uh, so this actually brings us to our last question of the whole uh, interview, which is so exciting. Um, so <laughs> this is uh, one question that uh, Deanna and I came up with a long time ago, and we're so excited to hear your answers, because uh, I think it really is a great way to end off the day. Uh, and then, Andrea, if you could answer this one first, and then Fern. So the big question is, what makes a truly great OT? You know, it, it's we need so many qualities, I think, to be to be good clinicians. But the one we need above everything else, I think, is to be reflective. And no matter how good your session is, there's always something that you could probably improve upon. So no matter how many years of experience you have, whether it's one year or ten year or or twenty years, it's just reflect on what it is that you're doing. And at the end of the day, you know, strive for progress, not perfection. Um, and really make, you know, the most important thing the most important thing. You know, it's, it's not always having all the right answers for your clients. It's about, you know, keeping your well-being, their well-being in the forefront um, and not getting caught up in all the drama that can sometimes happen in the workplace. So for me, it's being a reflective practitioner. Wow. That's, that's a great point. Yeah. I like the progress, not perfection. 
because I feel like right. a lot of us, especially students, really strive to be perfect <laughs> to the point where it's almost not healthy. So I think the progress is really important because you want to have your patients improving and you don't need to necessarily aim for perfection. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I've got 20 plus years of experience and sometimes I just have terrible sessions. I'm like, oh, wow, that could have went so much better than it did today. And it's, it's about reflecting and looking at what could I have done differently or what am I going to try next time um, and letting go of that. Make peace with imperfection. Oh, my gosh. As, that's just life advice there for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's great life advice. It really is. <laughs> And then Fern, no, probably, yeah, she has a much more eloquent example. I'm sure well, Fern, Fern always does. She has that. great words. She's our wordsmith. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I was just thinking about what makes a great OT in terms of the three H's, H being a letter of the alphabet. And the first H that I identified is using your head. H is for head. So you need to think. OTs need to be smart. They need to be thoughtful. They need to use research. They need to use that clinical reasoning and come up with the best evidence-based options for their clients. So use your head. That's number one. So the second H is your hands. So OT is a doing profession. You might need to build something, physically adjust something, modify something, or adapt something. You might be using your hands to help somebody. So use your head to think. Use your hands to help. And the third H is, of course, use your, engage your heart. A good OT will be a caring person, will prioritize that client relationship. And, and if you use engage your head, engage your hands, and engage your heart, you're bound to be a wonderful practitioner. Wow. I love that. That's so beautiful. That's amazing, yeah. <laughs> Fern, I think you need to copyright that. And I think you yes. need to write a book called <laughs> Heads, Hands, Heart, Occupational Therapy in the Modern Age. I think that's what it needs to be. <laughs> That was so beautiful. Uh, thank you guys so much for sharing everything and for, and for coming on here today. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And, and well, thank you so much too. for inviting us. Thank you for inviting us. It was a pleasure to speak to you. And I know you are both going to be wonderful OTs as you progress in your education. And you have a lot of um, wonderful opportunities in front of you. Thank you. Yeah, we're definitely yeah. looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, I think we're both very excited to continue our OT journey. And I love doing things like this because I learned so much just from this whole podcast, which makes me even want to be, become an OT even more, just awareness and learning so much. And we just want to thank you both again, Fern and Andrea, for everything during this podcast and for answering all of our questions. And then we would like to thank the audience for listening. And if you'd like thank to you. learn more about Fern and Andrea and the wonderful projects they're working on, you can refer to the Salus University website. And be sure to look out for Fern and Andrea at the AOTA conference in San Diego next year um, in 2021. <laughs> Crazy. And then stay tuned for another podcast from Becky and me. Yay. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Bye, Thank everyone. You. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media. 
on Facebook at My OT Journey and on Instagram at My OT Journey Podcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!